0: Every story has a figure that becomes a foil that prompts us to ask questions about our long-held assumptions. Or are there times where listening to someone else's story, you may discover uh, a way forward as you wrestle with your own significant questions? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Patheological, Path the podcast for the pastor theologian with a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. Uh, Maybe we call it uh, theological reflection. At least back in seminary days, that's what we did. I want to thank you for listening, and hopefully the episode today will be one that you would find helpful and and would be willing to share. It's a special episode. I had an opportunity to preview uh, the Netflix film, Come Sunday. My friend Ryan Parker sent a link over, and I watched it a couple times, and then uh, he gave me the opportunity to interview the Reverend Carlton Pearson, who is the main character in the story, Come Sunday. Uh, The Netflix uh, uh, um, film is uh, co-directed or co-produced by Ira Glass, And it really stems from a 2005 episode on This American Life. And so um, when I had the opportunity to interview uh, Reverend Pearson uh, about the film, about some things in it, um, I I was looking forward to that. So uh, here is my conversation uh, uh, about some of my observations from Come Sunday with the Reverend Carlton Pearson.
1: This is Carlton Pearson from Tulsa up the road. How are you, sir? I'm doing well today.
0: Good. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk to you about come Sunday.
1: Pleasure, sir. Pleasure. Doing my last call for today. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry I'm a little late. They go over sometimes.
0: Yeah, I know those things uh, sure do. They they do go over. Um, I want you know I'm just up the road. I uh, actually had an uncle that served as minister of music at Eastwood Baptist Church in Tulsa back in uh, the 70s.
1: Oh, yeah. One of our popular ones. And you are you a pastor
0: too? I am. I pastor here just southwest of Oklahoma City in Tuttle, Oklahoma. Tuttle. Yeah, a Tuttle is going to be just due west of, say, the Moore Norman area.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. That's where the earthquake took place, right? I mean, not the earthquake, the uh, tor- the cable. T- wow, you were involved in that.
0: Yes, uh, we were involved in the recovery of the one in '99. And then there have been some lesser size tornadoes, uh, but that one in 99 was the big one.
1: Hmm. Wow. Many, any of your members uh were affected by that?
0: Yeah, we had some folks who had lost their homes or had their homes pretty severely damaged. Uh, no injuries, uh, but we had those who lost a lot of material things.
1: Yeah, wow. And now we're having now we're having earthquakes here. That's where I went through my first 18 years of my life in California. <laughs>
0: Oh, wow! Yeah, we we are having earthquakes. We have a lot of drilling activity out here, and we're experiencing some of what's going on in other parts of the state. Wow! Yeah, my my friends in California used to always cajole me about tornadoes and such, and I would re, uh, retort by referring to their earthquakes. Well, now I can't do that.
1: <laughs> I know, I know, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> Well, we don't have tornadoes out in California very much. I don't think there's ever been.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think so. Mudslides maybe and wildfires. That's about it. It's,
1: pretty, it's pretty, scary, pretty scary there right
0: now. Well, I've actually been uh, familiar with your story uh, because you've been here in the state. Uh, you know, there have been a number of articles along the way. I really want to talk to you about a couple of things uh, I observed in the film come Sunday and just kind of chat.
1: Well, that that'll be
0: fine. Now this is, is this well, this is a podcast. Okay, all right. Yeah, it's a podcast. I'll be putting this on what uh, uh, I call uh, pathological. The podcast or the pastor theologian. I've had authors and practitioners and theologians to talk about the intersection of life and faith and thinking theologically. I, I was just wondering, uh, as you noted, know, the most difficult thing is when you have deep relationship with some folks. Uh, in the congregation, and let's say a breach has been experienced. Uh, I, I'm wondering if over time, uh, if any of the folks have called and said, hey, we should have been more patient or we should listen more carefully or we should not have been so uh, abrupt or have been any of those you know, sorts of things uh, expressed. H- has anyone uh, approached you like that?
1: Yes. Um, You know, the first one to say that to me was Eddie Long, Bishop Eddie Long, who died of AIDS here about a year ago. Um, He was the guy I went on. uh, I didn't know Eddie that well, but he was a good friend of T.D. Jakes. And I ran in the circles with all these megachurch pastors, but I saw him in Las Vegas at the uh, Trumpet Awards. And um, he walked over to me voluntarily. This was before he had come out or anybody knew any scandal around him. I was suspicious of it because I I have other pastor friends in Atlanta. But he walked over to me and he kissed me on this she not anything sensual, but we do that. And he said, he said, Bishop, we didn't do you right. We didn't do you right. I'm so sorry. And um and I had a I have had, of course, recently, more guys are calling me, some fairly these guys pastor churches of thousands, and they're saying, Will you come in? Can you can you can you speak for my anniversary? Can we meet? Can we just put on golf ball caps. And we, we we misread you, Bishop. You scared us. You stunned us. You shocked us. We ran. And and now we're ready to reconsider. One guy said, I'm going through your book, The Gospel of Inclusion, the second time. He was the general secretary of a whole movement of thousands of churches. <clears throat> and he said, we just want to talk and ask you, do you mind us? He said, we'll come anywhere you want us to go. We'll fly. If you want to do it in in Europe, we we will come. We want to spend two or three days with you, totally uh, uh, candid, and let's talk. And uh, I uh, so there's a there's a a real shift. A lot of these guys have gay kids in their family, or their marriage was in. they divorced? Or they they went through some trauma? They got kicked out of their church, or they had you know board member problems, whatever. So they're all hurting and bleeding shepherds. And they're experiencing a kind of cognitive dissonance, uh, a conflict between what their mind believes and what their soul has experienced. So it's a good time. It's a really, really good time. It seems like I hear birds. You, you have live birds in your uh, studio? <laughs> no,
0: I actually haven't. Uh, I have a sliding door in the dining room where I am, and, and the birds are singing
1: pretty well this morning. Wow, that's, that's beautiful that you get to hear that.
0: Yeah, they're really having a good time.
1: They're really happy outside. Yeah, They,
0: they are. You know, uh, Reverend Pearson, when I think about your story, I'm also intrigued about how uh, the story of Reggie plays in the film. Uh, he seems to give a, a greater sense of an existential experience where, you know, most of the time uh, doctrine or whatnot lives in our head. And now here is a figure where throughout the story, uh, this really takes what you described to a, a really practical or material level. You know, where we know people who are or who have family members that are gay, and and we wrestle with how to minister to them, how to think about those experiences. Uh, We reflect on what we were told about those in our formative times, and and then we move through our lives and experience uh, uh, with folks um, that force us to move beyond just thinking about it but doing something. And And that ties in with the story of your uncle. How would you help someone who is um really wrestling um uh with who's been advised to to be rather stoic about those things and whole doctrine uh and 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 not be so affected by those relationships um you're supposed to stay above and outside of that in those um in those very deep
1: moments um for you well, you know I've, I've been fascinated with the scripture for years that you know, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities or our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted just like we are, yet without sin. The the, the phrase that intrigues me the most is just like we are. Um, and then the scripture says, when tempted, no man should say God is tempted before God is not tempted by evil man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust ties so if if they're speaking of jesus that he could he could he was sympathetic or empathetic jesus had compassion even if you uh, believe something or someone is sinful you should never ever communicate anything to that person that Deflects away from a compassionate spirit. Jesus protected the adulterer, even though the Bible says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. He protected the adulterer, adulteress, from the stones of the Pharisees. And the Bible says, sinners heard him gladly. He seems to have had a relationship with sinners and tax collectors and Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think you would have voted for Trump, but he had a relationship with Republicans um, that seems to be uh, compassionate. And so love, Todd, is such a sloppy, raggedy word anymore because nobody can hurt you or or hit you or hinder you or even hate you. Like somebody you love or who loves you, you see that in divorce court all the time. You see that in after funerals and families divide over property or whatever, you see people who who you know they love each other, but they can't stand each other. so um, i I when dealing with and you don't really know a person until you sit down the the biggest thing about this deal with with the um, AIDS is the guy that plays that role of Keith. Um, is that that young man Jesse was my associate, and people thought actually that he was a son I had had out of wedlock, and was trying to, you know, sneak him into the to the to my successorship, which is not true. But because I sat with him and talked, and other gay people, or Muslims, Hindus, atheists, have a firm conversation. Said, "So tell me what you're thinking. Why don't you love Jesus?" And of course they always say, "Well, we do love Jesus." Well. I we just don't like his followers. Okay, well, let's talk about, tell me, are you telling me you don't ever feel sexual or erotic attraction to a female or if I'm talking to a female, to a man? I, I interviewed a, a um, trans just here this week that was an ORU graduate. She has two children, daughters, and uh, she was suicidal before she came to the Unitarian Church. That's the same church Richard, I mean, uh, um, Ron went to. And I talked to the old man who was pastor, Dr. Wolf. Um, and Oral and Evelyn slipped into that church one Sunday morning, sat on the very back row, and when Dr. Wolf heard they were there, he he saw them after service, and he said, what in the world is Oral and Evelyn Roberts doing in a Unitarian church? And They said, we wanted to come by and see who and what was feeding my son, our son. Now that's the only church where a gay man could go, because we didn't know Ron was gay. There was nothing about, he wasn't around that much. But when he, when he shot himself, it, it stunned us all. I was, I just left the ministry. I was preaching in the Bahamas. I remember I heard on the radio that night and uh, I've talked with Earl several times. In fact, you'll see that scene when we talked. Um, he finished that conversation because a young man, a preacher had come out, had been found out, out in another state, uh, out there where Oral lived. And this guy was a revivalist, had miracles and deliverance and all that stuff, but he was demonized. And he was going to Lester Summerall and Oral Roberts for counseling. And the reason I know that, because after he got out, Ted, he he had used our church twice. I wasn't there, but nobody would receive him in this town. Our people did. And they were balking and rebuking devils and demons and calling down strongholds the whole time. And my associate at that time, one of my associates said, pastor, they're really weird. They... I mean, they're Pentecostal people, but they're just overboard about devils and strongholds and all that stuff. I said, well, I'll tell you what's behind that. I bet you, I actually use the term, that preacher is dealing with some kind of demons in his own life or his mind. He's wrestling with something uh, because what you make the issue, you make the idol. And then later, a few years, that came out. Well, he called me and said, can I, can I, I'm coming through Tulsa, can I meet with you? I said, sure, but well, where should we meet? We met at a restaurant. And he, uh, the first thing he said to me was, is Oral Roberts a prophet? Now, in our charismatic circles, that's a presumption. Everybody assumes Oral to be a prophet, though he never claimed to be. But he's like the apostle and a prophet, you know, those terms. So I was a little bit offended that he would ask that because he knows that I would at least consider him prophetic. I said, well, yes, uh, but he doesn't believe prophecy is directional. He believes it's confirmational, that it would confirm something that the Holy Ghost has already, the Holy Spirit has already put in your heart. I said, why are you asking anyway? He said, well, I've been in therapy with him. I've been counseling with him and Lester Summerall uh, since I came out as a gay man. I said, "And, and what were the results? He said, well, I was waiting at Earl's house, and I've been in that house many times in California. He said, I was waiting for him to come out of the back area uh, from his bedroom. And he walked out and he pointed his finger and shook it in my face and said, if you ever become the leader of some kind of homosexual church, a curse will fall from heaven on you. And he said, it scared the hell out of me. He said, I was nailed against the wall. He says, I think, he said to me, "Carl, I think I'm going to hell. I said, why? He said, because I'm not free. And oral said, he couldn't cast this homosexual demon out of me. And Lester Summerall said that he and this guy wrote books about the generals of the church and all this stuff. He said, and these are my two heroes of deliverance and they cast out devils and they, you know, Gorders disappear and people get out of wheelchairs and we see that on footage. He says, um, I don't think I'm going to get delivered because I'm not. And these guys tell me they can't help me. If they can't help me, then I'm never going to be helped. He was shook, shaken. So I said, wait a minute, listen, let me, I'm sure Oral didn't mean that. Let me have a conversation with him. There is no demon we can't cast out. That's what I said to him. Of course, that's when I was in that mindset. A lot of the things we call demons is just psychology. It's just, you know, the, the Jesus and the King James version, they called it a lunatic spirit. There was somebody who was bipolar because lunar is, you know, the, the word from, for a moon. Uh, but the, the King James called it a lunatic. So anyway, I, I confronted all that. I didn't mean to, but, um, i never go to California without running down to their house to have lunch with them or something because they were older And uh, when he retired. And so I asked him that as I was leaving, He said, whoa, 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 back up, son. I said, I got to catch a plane, sir. He said, change your flight. We need to talk. So I did. I changed from LAX to John Wayne. And we sat there for three and a half hours. And Todd, Evelyn Roberts, his wife, has never sat in our conversations unless we're all riding together in our car. She, she sat there the whole three and a half hours, and that was the last time I saw her alive. But, but uh, when we finished talking, or else said, get your Bible, and we went from Genesis to Revelation, and he took a long time basically saying, he said, contrary to popular belief or my contemporaries, I don't believe, I believe that gay people are born that way. I said, well, What? You, based on what scripture? And he couldn't think of it. And I said, uh, uh, I was born in sin and shape. Yes, yes, born in sin and shaped and in iniquity. Uh, he, he, he said, and that doesn't change. You just have to have dogged faith, he said. He and said, a dogged faith and resist the devil. He will flee, but he'll always come back. And he ended up saying, there are things in my life. son. In fact, Evelyn kept interrupting. Well, Oral, you prayed for so-and-so. He, got, he, he wasn't free, Evelyn. He wasn't free. Well, what about that other He wasn't free, Evelyn. And stop asking so many questions. Let him talk. He yelled at her. And uh, and I winked, because we've I, we both seen him do a lot of crazy stuff. I just winked at her. But she sat there, and when we finished, she said, um, you know, I've been married to this man 66 years, Carlton, and I've never heard him say some of the things he said today. He unveiled to her, and I read between the lines. He said, There are issues in my life over which I've never had complete victory my whole life, but I was able to resist and I lasted. And he was a little bit vexed, and he was old. He was about 70, he was about 80 years old, I guess. And, um, you know, his hair was disheveled. He could barely hear, could barely see. And this is a healing evangelist. He was blind in one of the eyes, deaf in, the, uh, in one of his ears, and couldn't hear out of the other one either. And um, she was, they were on walkers, but he wouldn't use his. Um, it's hard. It, it, anyway, when we finished, he stood up beside my chair, and of course I stood, and he put his hands in his back pocket, and he looked up toward the ceiling. Because I talked about Ron, we we that scene that you see in the movie, we really got into Ron being gay and whether or not he was in hell. And Oral said, in in the midst of a conversation, he said, not one time. He said there was. He had an invalid tent, had the big tent that seated ten thousand, where he prayed, laid hands on the people, and there were miracles every night or healings. And then in the but the invalid tent. It looked like a disaster scene because there were ambulances and oxygen tanks and people, you know, defecating and regurgitating and urinating, and it was, it was foul. And back in the '40s and '50s, it was hot and unair conditioned. And, and between his sermon and the altar call, before he'd go to the healing service, he goes out, you know, take a leak and get something to drink, and then go over to the invalid tent and lay hands on all the people in there. Well, I knew that, but that day he said never once carlton there wasn't one miracle not one and he said it was with, with i could sense some anger you know some disappointment there was not one miracle in those invalid tents i said well sir please, there had to be one, not not one and i said what do you think that she said well as far as we know you know the people were ministered to but they were very they were feeling a lot of defeat so i said um well, you know, oral in the big tent, you had the Ellis and the music and the organ and the choir and there was, the atmosphere was charged with faith and they were singing and raising and praising God. The people in the envelope in those days, you know, they didn't have a TV screen in there and all that kind of stuff. They could hear it. I said, but it wasn't the same. And I tried to give him some explanation, not unlike my conversation with Billy Graham, where, um, uh, you know, I did the Oklahoma bombing thing with him and uh, because, uh Uh, I had Jim Baker on my platform that Wednesday night, the same night, the same day the bombing took place. It was in my conference. And uh, Governor Keating called me the next day and said, uh, listen, we're going to have a memorial service next Sunday. I need you to come. I just want you to close. The the service is going to be sad, a lot of brokenness. I've asked Billy Graham to do the eulogy. Can you come? And I said, of course, I'll be there. Uh, He said, I need you to take about three or four minutes on the end and lift the service back up to where it needs to be. said, I'll be there. Then he called again the next day and said, listen, man, this thing's going crazy. CNN's coming in, satellites, uh, President and Mrs. Clinton are coming in. I can't entertain Dr. Graham. Can you come in early and meet him at the mansion and and host him all day? Of course, any of us, including you, would have jumped on whatever to get there. said, well, that's like the second cousin to the Holy Ghost. I'll be there. (laughs) So I went charging down and uh, we're standing in front of the governor's mansion door, the main door. To receive him when they brought him in. Of course, the, everything. the cooks are there, the chefs are there, the butlers. The door opens, and this man, tall, handsome, tanned, slightly gray, uh, thin hair, face a little creased and wrinkled, you know, from carrying the burdens of the ministry. He shuffles into the front door and he's shaking with the Parkinson's disease, which you can visually see. Visibly see. And he goes and hugs every person in the circle the butler, the chefs, and then he grabs my hand my arm and we walk together and pick up our breakfast on the buffet and then we're seated. And we weren't there five minutes before he said, you know, I said, so, sir, what you, what have you been up to lately? What, what were you, where are you going next? Where you just come out of Crusaders? He said, I oh, know he said, now I'm retired. I'm all I'm doing is writing my memoirs. And he said, it hurts to even hold a pen. And so I, I said, well, let me, I cut up his breakfast for, we had light things, you know, I just cut it up, made it bite sizable. He said, you know, um, I've been preaching the gospel for over 50 years. And I think the world is worse than it was than when I started. Conditions are worse. I'm not sure how effective I've been. I said, what do you mean, sir? He said, I, you boys have it easy. You can get on supersonic jets and go all over the world. In in hours. Uh, He said, we had to take ships and go across the oceans. It would take us two and three weeks to get to someplace like India. He said, I couldn't stay three days or even three weeks. I had to stay three months so we could canvass the whole country and hopefully never have to go back. Uh, But I've been all over the world. And now I'm in Oklahoma City for nearly 200 people that were killed because of an act the worst act of terrorism on American soil. This is Oklahoma City, not New York or L.A. How did this happen here? He said, just a few years ago, I dedicated ORU up the road there so that this kind of stuff wouldn't happen. I'm I'm wondering how effective I've been. I mean, I felt so sorry for him. I. He said, I don't even know what I'm going to say to these people today. What are you going to say? And I said, well, I'm not. I'm not eulogizing them, so I'm just gonna come on towards the end. Uh I said, You you buried presidents and princes and priests. And you've done many of these. He said, No, it's not like this one. This is here in Oklahoma City. These are Americans. I've preached to these people for almost 60 years, and <clears throat> I'm not sure if, if if I've had a made a dent. And I can feel this grief. And I said, Well, I, I'm gonna open my statement with um experience is not only what happens to us, it's what we do with what happens to us. He said, whoa, wow, I might have to steal that from you. I said, be my guest, sir. I'll I'll repeat it again when you finish. (laughs) And he started talking about, um, he said, I think I'm going to stop trying to convert people and just convince them we've not been successful at convincing them that they're loved unconditionally by God. Now, this was before I was into inclusion, but it greatly Impacted my thinking. I just need, he said, we got to convince them. We're not successful at convincing them. And Tom, that's my biggest frustration right now. My church, we had traffic jams. My conferences, 30 to 50,000 people coming. I'd sold thousands of books. I'd written 18. I had been around the world, preached on television, preached to crowds of 250,000. I had Grammy awarding, uh, I mean, a stellar award winning gospel albums, everything we do, I had done with excellence. And I was bored to tears. And I kept thinking, we're not really growing church. We're just getting fat. Uh, Whoever has a conference, I said, "This this is spiritual incest. We're only seeding into ourselves. We're not reaching lost people. That's how I started this whole message on evangelism. I said, and I said, you guys are not bringing in sinners in here, and they're not being converted. I said, well, well the reason is you think it's illegal, and it's it's the '80s and, and '90s, and you're embarrassed. You're not going to do it. I said, so stop telling people that they need to get saved. Tell them that they're loved by God, their sins are already forgiven. I said, I don't care if they have a needle hanging in their vein or they're dying of AIDS. Tell them they're loved and forgiven. To the finished work of the cross—that's the good news. The good news is that their sins have already washed away. I, you know, John says, "Little children, I write to you that you sin not, but if anybody does, have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not for ours only." I said, "So they don't know." So that's that. That was the beginning of the universalist approach. I didn't even know they didn't really let us study in depth uh, universal salvation uh, in, in 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 our seminary our school of divinity, but that's what got me in trouble because people start sending those tapes around. And then they say, well, this sounds like Christian universalism. And, uh, that, that was the, you know, shift happens <laughs> and, and my, and my shift hit the fan. So <laughs> and I've been trying to get my shift together ever since.
0: <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I, uh, it, it leads me to uh, another question. If you've got time for one more, um, in listening to you describe that series of uh, interrelated events, uh, I'm struck because uh, the movie uh, begins. It opens with a scene of a well-worn Bible, and, and it's something that you know people should pay attention to. Uh, they should pay to all. Uh, attention to all elements of film, but but there's something being said there, something being referenced there. You know, it's the idea that when someone comes to a new way of reading, a new way of seeing, it's assumed that they've left the Bible behind, they've they've let it go. But in our conversation and what's portrayed in the film, it's very clear that the, the scene sets the stage for the underlying um, plot line as you came to this new place, it, was, it wasn't it was letting the Bible go, but it was wrestling deep with it. Uh, so whether or not someone can arrive at your same conclusions, it, it really is disingenuous, or so it seems, to lay claim that Reverend Pearson or anybody else, for that matter, uh, has just completely jettisoned the Bible. So, so I'm wondering, how would you communicate to somebody who is really wrestling, uh, whether it is with inclusion or any other issue, uh, doctrine or such, where they really are taking the Bible seriously, really working through it in our current context, and and working to make connections uh, that they also uh, can can take confidence they're taking the Bible seriously.
1: Well, you know, most of us fundamentalists are biblical literalists. We take the Bible literally. I take it seriously. I just don't take it literally. I think it's more important what Jesus said about God than what the church says about Jesus. Uh, we call it the inspired word of God. I think it's actually the inspired word of man, about God, as much as a human can uh, dis- can uh, somehow discertain God. Um, but the Bible itself says the letter, meaning the literal, kills. Uh, if you read the Bible literally, you can't, there's no way anybody can read it through and say it's infallible or it's inerrant, because it's full of errors and fallacies. Uh, to take a more sensible and psychological, even scientific approach to it makes it make sense. A personal God who's making a list, checking the twice, going to find out it's naughty or nice, is, is the one we're all afraid of. That's the Santa Claus image, it's fair to it. But because we have none of the original texts, or we have our copies of copies of copies, uh, we have to read it carefully and more studiously. Study to show thyself proved unto God. So I say, be careful how you see in the sixth chapter of the first book of 66 books, we get a little hint into the character of the biblical God when he says, and this is, we don't know who was there to hear him say it, because it wouldn't have been Moses, who we think we don't even know who wrote Genesis. It has no author. And most of the books are forgeries because by the time they came to us, the authors were dead, but, 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 um. God is quoted to have said, "My spirit, this is the sixth chapter, will not always strive with man. He's mortal. He's flesh. In fact, I repent that I made him. Uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna destroy him and the flowers, uh, the the fowls and the and the cr- creatures. I mean, the Earth project is not. I want a divorce. I want out. This stuff sucks. That's putting modern language on it. And of course, he sends the flood and and." Um, Nobody's in there but but Noah, who had preached 120 years. You know that. And didn't get anybody saved but his wife and kids. I would have got drunk, too. And he got, he he came out of there staggering, drunk with all that foul smelling of the fecal matter of those animals. He gets drunk, evidently, according to Scripture, to commit some kind of incestuous act with the Son. And then uh, God says, you know what, we're not going to do water anymore because they're going to screw up again. But the next time we're going to use fire. He speaks no confidence in creation. He says we're basically jerks, and 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 then Moses comes along, and, and the children of Israel hasn't heard from God in 400 years, and suddenly he comes up throwing a tantrum with bloody water and gnats and flies and locusts and dark days and dead suns, and so they're trembling and shaking, and Moses says so the fear of God has come to keep you from sinning. So this whole warped concept of a psychopathic God who's a narcissist who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, I'm a jealous God, all the things we're not supposed to be. That particular concept obscures uh, any purity in Scripture. And so these kids today, because of the—I have an Apple phone. And it has an Apple with a bite out of it. And so does my laptop, and so does my iPhone. The kids are looking into the cloud. They live in the cloud which is mist, mist and mystical, mysticism. And so I don't know what, what um, uh, what's the man's name that invented this uh, apple stuff? Steve, what he was thinking about when he put an apple on there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, science of good and evil. And it's all in our hands. Everybody's afraid of the mark of the beast. But if you got a cell phone, <laughs> your mark. <laughs> they call it cell phone, cellular. And smartphones for dumb people because I, I ain't that smart. <clears throat> but we've got all this technology around us, and we've got a generation who don't get what we got. They don't understand Sunday school. They don't appreciate I mean, I couldn't wait to get to church as a kid. My parents would punish me by not letting me go. My brother, it was punishment to go. He hated it. But, uh, you know, in those days, I'm talking the 50s and 60s, everybody lived around the scriptures. So we're reevaluating, but I, the scriptures inform me Jesus is my example. He's my, he's my model. He's my, he's my savior in, in the sense of my consciousness. I, and I ask Christians, do we need Jesus to protect us from God? Oh, uh, uh, what do you mean, Bishop? So Jesus didn't come to protect us from God. He came to reconnect us to God in consciousness. But you all believe that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, or he's accusing us to God. And God evidently would believe the deceiver unless Jesus reminded God and the devil, oh, no, no, wait. Those, all those sins are mine. I was wounded for their trap. I was bruised for their The chastisement is upon me, not them. That, that that God was in Christ, scripture reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, the King James says, imputing, which means computing, not adding it up so um, you know i have read this thing i- I majored in biblical literature, English Bible, my mind, it was theology, God logic, and historical studies, and so I did a lot of deep and I can take the script none of these preachers will get on a platform with me and debate scripture because they cannot deny. Mine, and I cannot deny theirs, but I played the devil's advocate so long, I know those scriptures. They're part of me. My daddy couldn't read, but he could quote the scriptures. <laughs> so I lived around the Bible and love it.
0: Well, you know, Reverend Pearson, I want to thank you for um, your time, uh taking that, your busy schedule to have a conversation with me uh, about the film and about your story, about ministry, about how how you, how you appreciate the scripture. Um, I hope folks will uh, go see Come Sunday, and uh, it's a very deep-layered uh, uh, film, and I certainly appreciate the time you've taken uh, with me today.
1: Pleasure, Todd. Thanks for being open enough to even discuss it with me. Peace and blessing to you, your family, your ministry, and keep doing the, the podcasting. It's important. Thanks for the encouragement. We'll keep it up. All right, buddy. Peace.
0: Hey, as always, uh, thanks for listening. I sure do think it'd be good if you took the opportunity to check out uh, Come Sunday on Netflix. And um, I still am hoping for a conversation with Ira Glass. Their schedules have been quite uh, busy and hectic, so um, maybe that'll come to fruition. I was pretty excited about the possibility of talking uh, with him, too, uh, about this film. And just the art of storytelling. I've got a a couple of uh, podcasts ready to go. Bill Bohrer and I had a conversation about uh, the pastor theologian, and then I had a conversation with my friend Alan Cross in the aftermath of the the MLK 50 event uh, that was held in Memphis uh, on the uh, week of the anniversary of the assassination of uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We had a really good conversation there. Alan is really insightful, and uh, so I'll have those uh, in the queue and then and they're going to be um, at a conference soon, and I may uh, get the privilege to interview a, a couple of others that uh, I normally may not. So those we'll call those surprise guests. Uh, so uh, here's what you do to help. Uh, help us get found, discovered. Leave us a a, a review, a rating in iTunes. You have to log in, and and, uh, then it'll show up eventually. But uh, it helps us get found, and and maybe folks will find this a great resource, pastors, um, lay lay ministers, uh, leaders, teachers in your congregation. So uh, do us a favor and share the podcast. And until next time, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor-theologian. Peace.